Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. In 1975, having established himself as one of the leading paranormal investigators of his generation, John A. Keel released his fifth nonfiction book. Rightly hailed as a classic of the genre, The Mothman Prophecies is a gripping account of Keel's investigation of a 1966-67 UFO flap centered on the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Many of the sightings he recorded involved a tall, winged humanoid with burning red eyes, which the local press christened Mothman. At points, Keel's account is so out of this world that you'd be forgiven for thinking it a work of science fiction. But apparently this is one case where reality either outdid fantasy or betrayed its secret alliance with it. In this episode, Phil and I discuss this masterwork of weird nonfiction, focusing our energies not on Mothman himself, but on Keel's own thoughts about what he experienced and the implications of the events and entities he witnessed. Because in the end, that's what matters. You only need to let one Mothman, Flying Saucer, or Man in Black through the mesh of your reality filter to realize suddenly that you live in a very strange world indeed. We hope you enjoy our talk, but before you do, let me just inform you that in addition to a vibrant Patreon community, which continues to grow, to our eternally grateful delight, Weird Studies now boasts its own subreddit, courtesy of a very engaged and savvy listener, to whom we tip our black hats. With luck, our presence on Reddit will allow even more people to engage with the show. I also want to take this opportunity to thank Pierre-Yves Martel, my little brother, for composing the music that you hear in Weird Studies, episode after episode. You can find out more about Pierre-Yves' work on his Bandcamp page at pierreyvesmartel.bandcamp.com. That's P-I-E-R-R-E-Y-V-E-S-M-A-R-T-L at bandcamp.com. Okay, come at me, Mothman. Today, the day of the that this episode is released, is a Wednesday, which, according to John Keel, is the most Fortean, most attuned to weirdness day of the week. He has a little chart. It's the only chart in the book. It's a chart where he basically shows you the number of sightings that happen on each day of the week, and you can see that they go, they kind of they, they peak on Wednesdays. Yeah. Wednesday is the weird day, which makes yep. sense because Wednesday is the day of Votan. It's the day of Mercury in French. Mercredi comes from the Mercury. Yeah. Uh, the day of Hermes, the day of the weird. So it's and true. that's exactly why we chose that day as our release day for weird studies. Yep. So I, th- I felt uh, justified and vindicated when I read that. 
one of <laughs> John Keel's many, many revelations and insights in this book, Mothman Prophecies. See, like on Wednesday in the United States, distribution of UFO reports in 1950, he picked a year. <laughs> he picked the year that would... <laughs> Picked a random year that would uh, bear out his, his intuition. Um, in the United States, on Sunday, 40 sightings happen on Sunday, 53 on Monday, 44 on Tuesday, and then 57 on Wednesday, and then goes down to 51, 40, 32. And it's the same in Spain, Belgium. So he's got three countries there. He's got a random year. And on that year, in those three random countries, Wednesday was the day to see a UFO. Which yeah. I guess points, I guess this is all hinting at one of the minor, and I think, I don't think this is an actual criticism, but it is a criticism I can't help but make about John Keel is his selectiveness um, yeah. and his playing fast and loose with details. Yes. Uh, but that's all part of the magic spell that he's weaving with this book. Let's just admit I'm, it. I mean, it's a strange book in part because, I mean, it's a very strange book. It's one of the weirdest damn stories ever told. Uh, a classic of weird nonfiction. And we've been wanting to do one of those sort of classic books like Passport to Magonia or Hunt for the Skinwalkers. Like, you know, these books that are like sort of... Daimonic Reality be a good one too. Yeah, that one is special because it it's not such a compendium of just odd Fortean events as it is a kind of real thick end of the wedge thinking through of what they mean or what pattern they make. Um, mm -hmm. And Keel wants to do something like that, but the book still does read a lot of the time, like a miscellany of weird stories. Kind of reminds me of the old Newfie joke. How does a Newfie count fish? One, two, three, another one, another one, another one, <laughs> another one. <laughs> Nobody outside of Canada is even going to understand what a Newfie joke is, but like... You know, that that's a feeling I often get with books of this kind, with the kind of classics of weird nonfiction, where it's just a pile up of strange stories one after the other. And my uh, UFOs particularly, my eyes glaze over with most UFO books because it's just like, you know, and so and so reports that they were on a country road when they saw lights in the sky and the lights were these colors or these other colors or the UFO moved up and down or it moved side to side or it landed or, you know, whatever. The details always vary, but not in ways that feel like they amount to anything. It just feels like another one, another one, another yeah. one, another one. There's no pattern except for uh, the fact that people are seeing strange things in the sky. There's a pattern in Mothman prophecies. There is. And yeah. so that's, that's why I would say, you know, that Mothman Prophecies is not one of those books. It's not a book that ever made my eyes glaze over. I found it riveting from beginning to end each time I've read it. Uh, do you know? Do you do you know aesthetically what book it reminds me of? No, it's very similar in its form and in weird ways. I noticed on this read to Naked Lunch. Really, Naked Lunch is a very episodic novel with little vignettes, all these little things happening. And there are a lot of recurring motifs and themes and colors and symbols all along, which allow you to kind of string all these vignettes on the same kind of clothesline. You can kind of see mm -hmm. how they're all connected, but their connection is kind of um, 
they're not symmetrical. They don't really fit like puzzle pieces. They're just like little pieces of one thing, but it looks like the one thing just exploded and just left a bunch of fragments and you'll never <laughs> put it back together. And you get the same feeling reading John Keel that he was privy. He, he witnessed something big. He got very close to seeing what the thing was, but ultimately all he can show us are fragments of it. And his guess is as good as ours as to how these all fit together ultimately. Um, and I would invite anyone who has both books, just read like five random pages from Naked Lunch and five random pages from Mothman Prophecies. And you'll see that these two books are extremely similar in terms of form and structure. That's very interesting. This was my second read and I was, uh, I was even more impressed with it this time. A lot of weird books I find the second time around, um, for all kinds of reasons, they don't hit as hard. But this one, huh, it's just such a, it's, it, it reads, first of all, it reads like a novel. It reads like yeah. a, an amazing experimental novel of the 1960s or 50s, if you want to look at Nigga Lunch as an example. Um, but also, it, it just opens up my sense of wonder and dread, unlike any other nonfiction book I've read, or at least yeah. like very few of them. There's something about his kind of down to earth, almost kind of like, uh, somewhat cynical, cynical and humor and, and very humorous, uh, style and tone jaded. Yeah. Combi that combined with the, just the gravity of what he's telling us. And some yeah. passages in there are so dark and pessimistic, um, yeah. I don't know. It, it just, it casts a strange spell. It's very Lovecraftian. It's very much about how the world is neither moral nor even rational, ultimately. Um, yeah. But we might, we'll get into that eventually. It's a book that has a really strong effect on me. And um, I'm very happy to get this chance to discuss it because there's so much to mine in it. There's so many little pieces we can pull out and look at and... I have no yeah. idea where you decided to underline, but um, hmm. it, it, it's... But, but underline yeah. I did. Yeah, so, so yeah, did there I. Some, some impressive passages. And one thing that I underlined is the very last line of the book. Yeah, same here. Th that uh, picks up on what you were just saying a moment ago. He says, after spending a lifetime in Egyptian tombs among the crumbling temples of India and the lamasseries of the Himalayas, endless nights in cemeteries, gravel pits and hilltops everywhere, I have seen much and my childish sense of wonder remains unshaken. But Charles Fort's question always haunts me. If there is a universal mind, must it be sane? Yeah. And that is a dark thing to consider because much of what is coming out of this story is a sense that there is a really indeterminate boundary between inside and outside, between what I think of as my subjective sense of who I am and the universe at large. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just got done recording an extra episode for the Patreon where we talked about this in some detail. But there's a way in which Fordian phenomena, paranormal phenomena, or even more mundane things like just dreams are kind of telling on you. Yeah. You know, this is a point that one of our listeners, uh, herself, a very good writer and uh, somebody who's appeared on a bunch of Weirdest Fear podcasts, Stephanie Quick, the Julia Child of Sex Magic, as her Twitter byline has it. Um, <laughs> she made this point, actually, the first time she got in touch with us, it was in response to an episode we did with Jeff Kripal, 
And Kripal was sort of, you know, he's all about people coming out of the closet, coming out of the Gnostic closet, as they called it, um, talking about their weird experiences, being open about them, because, you know, and for the very good reason that there are a lot of people who've had a lot of weird experiences that they won't tell to anyone for fear of being called crazy. And Stephanie's point was sort of like, yeah, but the problem is it's the nature of these phenomena that they kind of tell on you. It's sort of like things that you are accustomed to thinking of as inner stuff, interior stuff that seems somehow expressed externally. Yeah. Like a synchronicity is an expressive event. It's an aesthetic event. It's an expression of something. But that something will be something that's in your head or in your soul or in your heart, something you're feeling or thinking. And talking about these things is um, disconcerting. We were talking about this in the extra because you feel like even to talk about your own weird experiences, you're kind of disclosing things about yourself that maybe you don't want to disclose. But quite apart from that, it also suggests a sort of idealist conclusion that mind is continuous from out there into in here. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense that you have when you're in the in a full-blown storm of synchronicity or a storm of weirdness, there is a feeling that your mind is a subset or an aspect, a facet or a function of some other larger mind. And what Keel is asking us is, yeah, and is that mind sane? Because everything that happens in this book would suggest that it is absolutely insane. Right. At another at another point in the book, he says that good and evil are synonymous in the phenomenon's phantasmagorical world. In other yep. words, this thing is beyond good and evil. It's beyond logic and reason. But let's let's just give people a, a sense of what he's talking yeah. about yeah, in this book. Take a step yeah. back here. So the book is essentially about a thirteen month period in and around West Virginia, where a shitload of weird stuff happened to a whole bunch of people. Many of these anomalous events involved a creature that one of the newspapers of the area dubbed the Mothman as a kind of tribute or, or joke about Batman. But many of them didn't. Many of them involved UFOs, uh, shaggy Sasquatch-like creatures, uh, men in black. So these are strange, quote-unquote, foreign-looking men who dressed in black who claim to work for the government or claim to work for some non-existent agency who try to get people to stop looking into UFOs and that sort of thing. It started off as a basically as a UFO flap thing. And then it, as John Keel starts to investigate it, it starts revealing all kinds of other phenomena, which I guess until then had not been linked to UFOs. Like very few, even today, very few people would link Sasquatch to UFOs. But the, the truth is that there's a very strong correlation between Sasquatch and UFO sightings. They happen in the same neighborhoods, right? So to speak. And during this 13 month period, there was this kind of like mounting sense of foreboding and weirdness in Point Pleasant, West Virginia and the surrounding area that ultimately culminated, according to John Keel, in the destruction of the Silver Bridge in, in Point Pleasant. So the bridge collapsed, dozens of people died. And uh, that's kind of the culminating event or the climax of the story, what it all leads to. But of course, even that feels like conjecture at the end when John Keel's trying to make it all work together. And so he's just basically in this book cataloging 
all of these experiences that he went and investigated, all these things that people had experienced, that he went and he interviewed these people. He was already a parapsychologist or kind of a paranormal investigator before then. So he just spent this time in Point Pleasant and thereabouts and interviewed dozens of people who'd seen strange things. And then, of course, as he starts to investigate, he himself becomes intimately involved in the phenomenon to the point where one gets the sense at certain points in the book that he's telling us that it was all kind of about him. And he actually opens the book with an incident that would support that interpretation that he was somehow deeply involved in the whole thing happening to begin with. So that's kind of the what the book's about. We can be more, we'll be more specific about what people experienced and what they saw as we continue on discussing. Yeah, but I wrote a note in here saying it's weird that Kiel never asks why all this stuff keeps happening to him. It's clear that he is aware that his presence in the story is an important part of the story. Yeah. Well, of course it is, because he's the guy who told the story. There was no way of knowing that in 1966, 1967, when he was conducting these investigations, as he makes it clear, there are a number of other investigators who were uh, going over the same ground as him. But Keel, unlike those other people, wrote a great classic of weird nonfiction, a book I suspect that people are going to be reading 100 years from now. And so from that point of view, it's like the phenomenon is posing for its picture. Yeah. I think he does say that when he talks about the phenomenon being imitative and riffing off of our beliefs about it, that the phenomenon, which is the name he gives to the kind of like the whole host of weird events yeah. that he's UFOs talking about. UFOs and Mothman and yeah. the collapse of the bridge and precognition and the whole shoot and match. Right, the yeah. whole thing. He talks about the phenomenon as interact. It's reacting to you. He mentions that the more you look into this stuff, the more these things will happen. So yeah. I think he sees his own centrality in the narrative. I, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but uh, I think he would say something like, well, I was the one digging. It saw me and then it started to feed it because he was the one connecting all the dots. So he was the one interviewing so-and-so over there and such-and-such over there and, and connecting their stories together. So the phenomenon zeroed in on that and then started to feed it. And by the end, I mean, he's kind of going crazy at the end of the book. Yes. Um, when he is. actually gets into the phone company building and starts looking to see who's tapping his phone, it gets really nuts. You know, It does. He has a way with his deadpan kind of like cynical tone to downplay how mad he became. But it's quite clear in the events he's reporting, if they actually happened, that he got pretty far down the rabbit hole, that he was really losing it. Absolutely. And there's a, a sinister conclusion to the story of one of the people who pops up in this novel, a filmmaker named Dan Drasnan. And this is right at the end in the second last chapter. Dan Drasnan was on the line and I'd never heard him in such a state. His normally calm voice dripped with terror. How can I stop all this, Keel? He cried. Stop what? All the things that have been happening. I want to quit. I want out. Look, I just got in. What's wrong? What's been happening? Everything. I can't take it anymore. I knew Dan didn't drink or take drugs, and I certainly never expected him to go to pieces. There's only one way out, Dan. This damn thing becomes an obsession, a fixation. 
The only way to stop all the nonsense is to stop thinking about UFOs. Get rid of all your files. Take up stamp collecting or chasing women. The UFO business is emotional quicksand. The more you struggle with it, the deeper you sink. Yeah. And he says he destroyed most of his files, gave kill the rest, and departed forever from the scene. And I suspect that probably his life returned somewhat to normal at that point. Not everybody is so lucky. Yeah, a lot of people did not make it out of this. Contactees. Um, yeah. Those contactees who are basically driven to start cults and stuff, and that's one thing, but also the contactees who are suddenly abandoned by their contactors and then are left to wonder for the rest of their lives what happened. And that could be just as devastating. He makes it real clear that the, the danger with this sort of phenomenon is that the deeper you dig, the more you'll find, but the, the less you'll understand and the less you'll know. Even though, on the other hand, he also says that we are close. We, there is a way to know this. We can actually get to some kind of truth about this. At the end, that's how the book ends. He writes at the end, he writes, um, we do not know who we are or what we're doing here. And he's talking here about humans in general. But we are slowly learning. Once we begin looking beyond the mere manifestations, we will finally glimpse the real truth. Belief has always been the enemy of truth. Yet ironically, if our minds are supple enough, belief can sometimes open the door. If he'd ended the book there, and I think I'm, he, probably, he probably considered ending it there, but then he added the really dark passage that you read earlier right after right. about if there is a universal nine, must it be sane? The truth may be that we live in an insane universe. That there is no knowing. That ultimately, the truth we can know is that there is no rational grounding to anything. Almost in a kind of Lewis Carroll or H.P. Lovecraft sense. And right. then we have to ask ourselves a question that Lovecraft constantly asks, which is, should we know this if it is the truth? Yeah. Is it a truth we should seek out or is it a truth... You know, as Lovecraft famously said, is that when we come face to face with that truth, we'll have to choose between going mad collectively as a species, which I think we actually did long ago, but whatever, <laughs> or or uh, taking shelter in the new dark age, basically burning the books. And his suggestion to his friend Dan that he destroy all the files, that's precisely what a lot of Lovecraft protagonists do at the end of their stories. They destroy all evidence. That's the best they can hope to achieve under the circumstances is to destroy the evidence so that no one else can head down the paths that they dared to venture on. Right. And the book kind of ends on that note, yeah, which is well, not the most um, encouraging. Well, it's, a, it's an act of banishing. I mean, consider, we've talked about banishing repeatedly on the show in my own semi-joking, but not really, idea of concluding our more fevered speculations uh, with what a load of bullshit that it's important to be able to put some distance between yourself and your thoughts, because if you become consumed by your thoughts or completely captive to them, uh, then bad things will happen. Then you're stuck. Then you're in this sort of chapel perilous condition. You can't break out. You become paranoid and weird. But uh, what Keel is telling Drasnan to do, burn your files, stop thinking about this and take up some other hobby, uh, is in a sense, the same kind of thing, put mental distance between yourself and the phenomenon. And you're, you're quite right. And I didn't notice this, but it's very interesting that the, the second last paragraph has a kind of positive spin to it. And then the last paragraph has this Lovecraftian yeah. um, 
ending on an absolutely down note. But I can't help but think it's like you need to close the door on this phenomenon. It's like it's all bullshit anyway, which is kind of what he says in that last paragraph. It's all bullshit. Yeah, we may be all part of some aspects of whatever or party to some kind of larger universal mind, but perhaps that mind is vicious or demented. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's perhaps a necessary thing to think. I get a little tired of people saying over and over again, as Keel does, as Robert Anton Wilson does, as almost everybody in this space who, uh, anybody who's cultivating that kind of hard-boiled investigator persona does, where they say, I don't believe anything. Yeah. This is obviously untrue. It's yeah. impossible to go through your life without believing things. Of course. Everybody does need beliefs. And even believing that um, the phenomenon is ultimately impossible to pin down or to contain in a concept of any sort or to know, yeah. that's still a belief, right? <laughs> so right. that that means you'll just say no to every possible interpretation of it. So if yes. they say somebody sees a light or a being with wings like flying above a field, well, the person's a Christian, they'll say, I saw an angel. The person's uh you know, a pagan, they'll say, I saw a fairy or whatever. And then what John Keel will say is like, no, 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 I don't believe in anything. I don't believe any of you know what you saw, but what did you see? Okay. So, so he'll write down, someone saw a being with wings. Okay. Well, at some point you got to believe something, either they saw something or they didn't. So, I mean, but of course the term belief is a loaded term. It can mean different things. I think that people conflate belief, meaning, uh, um, uh, stating as true, and belief in terms of trust, like you have to believe the phenomenon is real to investigate it. A lot of people don't believe it's real. So John Keel does believe in that. He trusts that his senses and the senses of his witnesses don't lie, that the, what they saw is something that was there. It wasn't just a hallucination. Although sometimes he refers to the, the phenomenon as a hallucination, he still believes a hallucination is pointing us to some real force in the universe. Well, that's a belief too. That's probably the belief he means when he says that the belief opens the door. Without believing in it, pretending it's all it doesn't exist, we're actually, well, we're obviously never going to understand it if we do that. But we need to at least believe that there is something behind the, the phenomenon that we can know. In that light, then we can critique, let's say, the angel interpretation versus the fairy interpretation, even though I don't know how much could be gained from that sort of discussion. But there's a moment in this book where he really makes it clear um, the danger he sees in belief. Here he's talking about the extraterrestrial theory of UFO phenomena. So he's talking about people who believe that UFOs are space people coming to Earth from another planet. And he says like this theory is just gaining ground all the time and more and more people are going there. In fact, the whole question of UFOs was initially framed in terms of extraterrestrials, even though the phenomenon itself had been happening for centuries before, had been happening throughout time. People have been seeing lights in the sky forever. It's only in modern times that we frame them as UFOs, but interestingly, you can trace the first UFO sightings, like the Kenneth Arnold stuff and all that. Uh, Even there, it's almost like we think some new thing happened around 1947 that hadn't happened before. Some new phenomenon came into being at that point, which was these flying saucers. Whereas in fact, if you look back, there were flying saucers centuries ago. You can see flying saucers in Renaissance paintings and whatnot. 
but he's talking about the danger of this particular hypothesis, the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He writes, I've been watching with great consternation the worldwide spread of the UFO belief and its accompanying disease. If it continues unchecked, we may face a time when universal acceptance of the fictitious space people will lead us to a modern faith in extraterrestrials that will enable them to interfere overtly in our affairs, just as the ancient gods dwelling on mountaintops directly ruled large segments of the population in the Orient, Greece, Rome, Africa, and South America. In other words, he's saying that we shouldn't believe in them because they exist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Vanishing again. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because belief is lending power to the phenomenon. Belief is what it feeds on. Yes. Yeah. So we're talking about belief in the older sense of fides, right? The Latin word for trust, mm, trusting, yeah, investing yeah. yourself in. So you can recognize that something exists without, like, I believe in you in that way. Yeah. But that's a nice distinction. But at the same time, we still have to discuss this phenomenon as somehow objectively real. We can't just say that it's each of us experiencing some kind of chimera of our own making in our minds and that there's nothing beyond our experience. Mm -hmm. um, he seems very clear about that. Yeah. There, uh, something that you were just saying hit the a quote about how the other eras, ancient Greece, Rome, South America, etc., people give their belief to these entities, whatever they are, or, to, you know, to this phenomenon. And that phenomenon then solidifies its position as a god. It becomes powerful. And this is a little bit like in, you know, Neil Gaiman's novel. Um, American Gods. Yeah. Uh, American Gods, where all these entities have gotten old and weak because there just aren't that many people who believe in them anymore. They need belief in order to become healthy. So, you know, and there's a, that's an appealing notion. Um, yeah. But then, you know, just as with every other possible frame that you could put the phenomenon in, it leaves something out. And so, for instance, um, on page 188, uh, this is a kind of a key passage to me. He starts off listing the names that various contacting entities have given to contactees, Zandark, Orthon, Ashtar, Zeno, Cold, and all their cronies have been leading many of us around by the noses for centuries. First, they convince us of their honesty, reliability, the accuracy of their predictions, and their well-meant intentions. Then they leave us sitting on a hilltop waiting for the world to blow up. When the world was sparsely populated and the signals from the superspectrum were not smothered in so much static from the lower spectrum, men learned to place great faith in these entities and their prophecies. Priests, scholars, and magicians achieved a marvelous understanding of the cosmos and the cosmic forces through astrology, alchemy, and the magical manipulation of matter. But as man followed the angelic dictate, multiply and replenish the earth, our planet began to suffer from psychic pollution. The record on that great phonograph in the sky cracked and stuck in a single groove, single groove, single groove, single groove. So he's getting into a kind of a story. It's a very common religious narrative shape where you say, once upon a time, there was a time when human beings walked with gods, when the magicians and the priests 
And the scholars of the time were dealing with real knowledge of the true mysteries of the universe, but those times are past. In the modern age, in our fallen era, in the Kali Yuga, whatever you want to call it, we no longer can speak to gods and we no longer can plumb the elemental mysteries we're left on the surface, right? And in a way, he's reinscribing that pattern because there's a problem with that theory of like all human religion is basically us being pranked by these entities. If you say that, then how do you explain all of the majestic accomplishments of human beings in religious art, in philosophy, and you know, all of the things that have sprung from contact with God or the gods? How could you look at all of that and say, no, that's just us being led around by the nose by these pranksome and malicious entities. It always leads nowhere. You always end up walking in a big circle. I mean, that's certainly Keel's experience of the Mothman phenomenon. But you really can't explain human history looking back at things like, you know, St. Matthew's Passion or the Sistine Chapel, to choose a couple of obvious examples, and say, yeah, that's just some bullshit <laughs> That's just well, some bullshit we are tricked into doing by these worthless psychic entities from the super spectrum. And so he has to explain that. And so he's like, that was different then, but something got cracked. And so now it's just like the degenerated copy and copy of a copy and a copy of a copy of a copy of the old messages. And I'm not sure I buy that. Well, I think that if you, if you kind of read that passage... In light of the previous passage that I read, I think what emerges is a kind of clear cosmology of the Kenian universe, which is that the gods are real, but they are not worthy of our trust. They're not good. They're insane. And um, there's a, a moment in the afterword where he basically says, and, and this, I guess this would answer the question as to how he would interpret human history in general, ultimately. He says, we are meant to be crazy. It is an important part of the human condition. Otherwise, there'd be no wars, no Hitlers and Napoleons, no Woodrow Derenbergers, the uh, contactee, and his unfortunate psychiatrist. This planet is haunted by us. The other occupants just evade boredom by filling our skies and seas with monsters. It's really weird when you start thinking about it. That's I agree pretty with you. nihilistic. Because he's basically saying there's no value to human or superhuman life. It's yeah. all just a bullshit prank. And I refuse to go along with him on that. So do I. But if the universal mind is insane, he's right. We agree on that, right? If the universal mind were shown to be completely insane, then he would necessarily be correct because it would make the Sistine Chapel and other beautiful accomplishments all the more ridiculous right. if these attempts at meaning just hung in a vacuous, meaningless cosmos. It just right. makes them look even sillier. Right. Like staunch atheistic humanism makes sense only at a certain focal lengths. The more you zoom out and see the earth in, in its proper milieu in space, the more absurd any claim to kind of the human spirit becomes. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think he's quite decided because I, I think sometimes, I don't know. I don't know what he, he I, I, this is the only book of John Keel's that I've read, truth be told. So. I don't know what else he's written elsewhere, but my impression from this one book is that he does, in a kind of Robert Anton Wilson kind of way, see the universe as a prank and not a humorous, meaningful, salvific prank, but a kind of evil, nonsensical prank. Yeah, a mean joke. Yeah. 
but it makes for great reading. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. <laughs> and and I, who can blame him? Like, just look at what he experienced. He was constantly investing. Like, there's one moment where through contactees, he becomes convinced that the entities are telling us that Pope Paul VI is going to be murdered uh, soon. So he's waiting for this to happen. Another part, he's warned about Martin Luther King's assassination. He actually tries to get in touch with Martin Luther King and fails, and Martin Luther King gets assassinated, but not exactly as it was predicted, but well, close enough. Well, actually, pretty much exactly as it was predicted, but exactly two months later. Exactly, in a different place, I think. And the the knife attack that was supposed to kill Paul VI doesn't happen at the time that they predicted, but happens later and it was failed. Basically, the, the assassin was stopped. So he's convinced that these prophecies were half true and half false. And his feeling as the deeper he looks into these things is that these things are always half right, but also half wrong or half accurate and half misleading, which just drives you crazy, right? It's like Facebook. It gives you, <laughs> if you post one thing, all your friends will see it. So you get a bunch of likes. And then the next thing you post, the algorithm will make it so that only 10% of your friends will see it. And all of a sudden you want that dopamine rush. So you post again, hoping that, and the algorithm controls exposure to your posts to keep you wanting more and more and more. And it looks like the, the phenomenon is acting the same way. It's giving you a lot of likes on one thing. Like, oh, wow, I predicted, you know, mm. like we'll be on that hilltop on that night and we'll see something. And he goes and sure enough, there's the UFO just sailing across the sky. But of course, the next prediction is totally off. And then the next one is half right. And the next one is right on again. And it's just feeding you. It's just, it's, it's almost like it's trying to lead you deeper into the rabbit hole and leading you deeper into paranoia and madness. It's like that famous passage from Kant where he writes, um, if cinnabar were now red, now black, now light, now heavy. If a human being were now changed into this animal shape, now into that one. If on the longest day the land were covered now with fruits, now with ice and snow, then my empirical imagination would never even get the opportunity to think of heavy cinnabar on the occasion of the representation of the color red. Or if a certain word were attributed now to this thing, now to that, or if one and the same thing were sometimes called this, sometimes that, without the governance of a certain rule to which the appearances are already subjected in themselves, then no empirical synthesis of reproduction could take place. In other words, in consciousness would be impossible. Right. If, you're, if you're in a situation where things change their nature from moment to moment, like Alice in Wonderland, the path to insanity is assured because the world is displaying insanity because insanity would be the proper way to calibrate your mind to the nature of the world if it were right. that way. Right. And so he is inevitably led down this path. And uh, at one point he has a chapter called paranoiacs are made, not born. He says, you know, I'm not a paranoid, but there was a moment where paranoia was the appropriate reaction or the appropriate attitude to my world. It's like, um, William Burroughs says, to get back to him, William Burroughs wrote that a paranoid is someone who knows what's going on, you know, like, <laughs> uh, because Burroughs argued that we did live in a kind of mad cosmos.
You know, it goes the other way. Um, paranoia also can generate these phenomena. And I have actually a couple of personal experiences of that. Um, so I want to read a passage. Uh, and this gives a flavor of many, 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 many stories in this book. There are so many stories. It's actually a little intimidating trying to figure out how you convey the character of the sightings or experiences of people have that are reported in this book because they're so multifarious and it sometimes does feel like what Kant is describing as a condition of insanity where identities are constantly changing places, things just constantly morph into other things where nothing holds still. Right. Um, but at the same time, there are also regularities in the phenomena and right from the beginning, Kiel is pointing out that he wants to use a kind of comparative method that actually is reminiscent of what Jeff Kripal has enjoined as the appropriate approach in comparative religion studies. That is to say, Keel writes on page 17, for every report I've published in my articles and books, I've shelved maybe 50 others because they had a possible explanation or because I detected problematical details in the witness's story, which cast doubt on the validity of a paranormal explanation. On the other hand, I've come across many events which seem perfectly normal in one context, but which were actually most unusual when compared with similar events. That is, some apparent coincidences cease to be coincidental when you realize they have been repeated again and again in many parts of the world. Collect enough of these coincidences together and you have a whole tapestry of the paranormal. And this reminded me a lot of... Um, Kripal's comparative method in books like Mutants and Mystics. So with that in mind, the, the sense that there are consistencies that repeat with an almost musical kind of emphasis from one situation to another. Um, there were times I was reading this book where it's like, holy fuck, that happened to me. So this is over on page 126, 127. In the middle of 126, he says, experience has taught me that paranormal events are often interlaced with puzzling yet seemingly normal things like strange phone calls. So he asked this one person if he'd received any odd calls. Uh, and he tells a story of a weird call that he just dismissed as a, a crank call. Finally, I asked him if he had ever had any really odd encounters with peculiar strangers. He looked at me bewildered and astonished. There's one that's always bothered me. It happened around the time of that phone call thing. One night when I was walking home to my apartment, I became aware of a man following me. When I looked at him, he stopped and grinned at me, but there was an air of evil about him. I can't pinpoint it exactly. Was he possibly some kind of sex deviate, I suggested. No, I don't think so. He was short and slight and wore a black coat and black trousers. His face was dark and foreign looking. I don't know why, but that evil grin is burned into my memory. And then a little bit further, Keel says, a foolishly grinning man is a staple item in psychic lore. Black suited with a dark complexion and craggy foreign face, he has been described to me in many places by many people. So that would be an example of something that does repeat, where cinnabar is yeah. cinnabar, like, like, you know, uh, where you do see some kind of consistency in the phenomenon. And I was reading this, I was like, this kind of thing happened to me on a couple of occasions. Occasions when... I, for whatever reason, was in a kind of a panicky state of paranoia. It doesn't happen to me very often, but every now and then I kind of melt down. I just become super anxious about some fear that my mind has grabbed onto. And I'm imagining like incredibly bad outcomes involving like getting arrested. I have a terror of being arrested and going to prison. And this is a stupid story, but 
you know, when I was a freshman in college, me and a bunch of friends went out to Kroger, it's a grocery chain here in the Midwest, and bought a bunch of stuff. And we had to walk about a mile back with our groceries. And that was a drag, you know. And so one of us was like, hey, let's just take one of these carts, a shopping cart. Um, and I was like, no, we shouldn't do that. So, you know, that's illegal. It's against the law to take a shopping cart which is true, but it's not exactly the crime of the century. But I just got <laughs> kind of stuck in a groove on that. And I got more and more panicky as like my friends just laughed it off. They were like, it's a fucking shopping cart. Come on. And so they were just merrily pushing this cart up this hill. And I was just getting more and more panicky. And exactly what is described here, a man following us who stopped and grinned at us. He was short and slight, was wearing dark clothing I didn't seem too well, but what I really remember is this grin, which just looked like a V, like a, a sharky grin, and is looking at us with this weird fixed expression saying, that's pretty funny that you took that cart. Hey, are you supposed to take that cart? Like, <clears throat> is that what he saying, said? Yeah. And just saying, well, things like that, like kind of dumb things, like that's another thing that comes up in this book repeatedly is that when these entities like manifest as human beings and they talk to people they often say stupid things or what they say is just really rudimentary this guy was just saying rudimentary things like oh, that's pretty funny and oh my god my paranoia went through the fucking roof and in i can imagine and in retrospect it was the sort of like as uh, mark Marin puts it it's a situation in my head that happened to me another time in my life, and I'm not going to get into the details of that, but it was a similar thing where I was just paralyzed with paranoia, and I was on my way somewhere, and it was sort of the crisis point, like I had to do something, and I thought that some terrible thing was going to happen as a result of that thing, and at that precise moment, someone exactly like what I just described, short dark complexion, features, hair, uh, with a big, wide grin, big, sharky, V-shaped grin staring at me in this weird way that nobody ever does. No one ever stares at you this way except small children and crazy people. Yeah. And he's looking right at me, and I have this feeling of dread like I can't tell you. Right. And I'm like, I can't go in the other direction. I have to go in this one direction. And he's just positioning himself exactly where I have to walk. And he's just looking at me and he's like, hi, <laughs> I'm there right now. I'm there right now. <laughs> exactly. And my, and again, my paranoia just hits a fucking peak just yeah. before it resolves and it goes away. And in both cases, in retrospect, it seemed weird, but it didn't seem that weird at the time. But in retrospect, it was almost like, yeah, like that kind of Twin Peaks Garmin Bosia thing. And by the way, the number of parallels between this book and Twin Peaks that I found is just... Oh, yeah. Uh, Frost and Lynch must have read this book and, oh, yeah. and incorporated a lot of ideas from it. But it's almost like I was generating Garmin Bosia for some random entity that was pranking me. It was just like pushing my paranoia into the red. And that so was you, the, do you think yeah. that your paranoia generated these people or do you think your paranoia allowed you to see them? That's an interesting question. I, I really don't know. I, mean, I have me, me neither. Neither of us knows. <laughs> I have another, I have a couple of weird entity experiences, which I kind of, 
okay, like where we started was talking about Kiel's basically sort of idealistic in the philosophical sense, the philosophy of idealism sense, that almost effortlessly suggests itself when you're working in this territory, that the inner is the outer, that my mind is continuous with some larger mind, and that therefore the very easy to swallow consequence of that is the idea that all of this stuff, it exists, but it's not material. So this comes out in the arguments people have about UFOs. The, the nuts, nuts and, and bolts versus, the, yeah. Yeah, the nuts and bolts people versus the psychic people. The psychic people pointing out, as Keel does throughout this book, that UFO phenomena have all kinds of parallels with like fairy lore and, you know, poltergeist phenomena and various other parts of the weirdosphere that we think of as more like in the nature of psychic phenomena, immaterial th things that are manifesting. Well, pol like, poltergeists are pretty material, but yeah. I well, guess that's in terms true, of but like you don't see an actual guy throwing your shit around, right? You just see your shit being thrown around. Right, right. So does the mind cause it to, th yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and also like, oh yeah, there's UFOs and they can show up on radar and shit, but they're not like nuts and bolts crafts. There's not some hangar where a UFO goes to be repaired, you know, like the people in the UFOs, it's not like they have some kind of job that when they're not <laughs> buzzing us, they're like, I don't know, they have hobbies they do in their spare time. They sometimes stop at a service station to take a dump. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I find it really easy to sort of look at all of the panoply of Fordian phenomena and find a comforting sort of warm bath response to it and being like, oh, it's all psychical phenomena. That's the grand unifying theory here. Nuts and bolts theory of UFOs is bullshit and blah, blah, blah. Except when you actually encounter real flesh and blood things that yeah. are, are, if not impossible, at least extremely weird. Like I've never seen anything as impossible as a Mothman, but I, okay, another story. And this, my son saw this with me. So this was uh, in 2017 when we were watching Twin Peaks, The Return. And my son and I were fucking demented about that show. And um, as you know, as somebody who's watched Twin Peaks The Return, the woodsmen are like a prominent type of entity that we see in Twin Peaks The Return. And then it was time for Nicholas to go up to college. It was his freshman year. And this is a psychologically charged thing. This is, I guess, continuous with what I was saying about, well, actually all of the examples I've given, they've all been conditions where there were some very fraught emotions. Uh, me being in the fucking red zone of paranoia on these two occasions where some strange grinning entity just manifested. And in this case, it's like, for me, a feeling of profound sadness at seeing my kids going off to college. Like by now I've gotten used to the idea, but at the time that was hard. Meanwhile, he has all these contradictory, very strong emotions around going up to start his life and, you know. And so anyway, while we're going up, we're in Wisconsin at a rest area. And there's like a little kind of a wood, a copse behind this rest area. And Helen and Alice went in to use the bathroom and Nicholas and I are in the car. And we're just sort of staring idly out the window. And a woodsman comes out of cops that, that little wood in back of the rest area 
an actual, according to Hoyle Woodman, he was about four foot six, maybe, I'm guessing. Not a little person, just a very small man with a bright red beard and bright red hair, a check shirt, and um, I think just jeans or like work pants. Uh, unlike the woodsman in Twin Peaks, he was clean, not covered in soot. And he's walking in a very peculiar way and hopping. If you've ever seen Fire Walk With Me, there's a scene where we see the little boy. Like, the mask. Yeah. Yeah. With his, in his mask, hopping. Yeah. And I think it's like Leland who is walking and he sees this little boy just skittering and yeah. hopping. Like it's the running, but then hop and then running in a hop. This motherfucker was doing that exact thing. And I mean, how many times in your life have you ever seen anybody do that motion? I've seen it twice, once in the movie and once that fucking woodsman guy. Yeah. And, and Nicholas, who is as skeptical a dude as they come, says in a low voice next to me, are you seeing what I'm seeing? I'm like, yeah, it's a fucking woodsman. And he disappeared inside the rest area. At that point, Helen and Alice came out of the rest area, came back in the car, and we tried to tell them what we'd seen. I don't know if it's much of a story, but like one thing I would say about it, it's like in every case, it's a guy. There's a fucking dude there. There were people with my shopping cart misadventure. There were people with me who were like, yeah, what the fuck is with that guy? But anyway, so these are some, my experiences of like weird people. And all of this is sort of like a long winded wave. I mean, a couple of things. Number one, reading Mothman prophecies made me realize continuities between these experiences and ones that thousands, millions of people have had. So there are some regularities in the phenomenon. That's one thing. Uh, another thing is that bad vibes or like strong emotion seems to call these things, or perhaps as you suggested, it perhaps deoccludes us that we can see them and we wouldn't otherwise see them. But who knows? I guess that would be another thing. But the other thing I would say about it is that that feeling I get where I just too easily slip into that thing of like, well, UFOs are not physically real. They're, you know, projections of some psyche, whatever the fuck that means, uh, that that too might be a, like a dangerous assumption. No, those are great uh, examples of the type of encounter people have. But of course, the psychic take has never been that these are hallucinations, but that those are, well, I mean, if you look at it from a Jungian lens, Jung was the one of the originators of this theory. So Jung believed there was a spectrum uh, going from the physical to the to the psychic and he created a category called psychoid of psychic things that are actually there objectively and observable by anybody who happens to be there at the moment so ufo's for him were psychoid because we couldn't account for them physically but they were obviously actually there in some physical sense so so like yeah. you could say that that was a spirit you saw that maybe the woodsman who hopped out of the woods, uh, did he, did he, did he go and buy a burrito in the rest area or did he, did he yeah, not exactly. even show up when he walked in? We don't know. Yeah. Like these are, these are, that's the thing about what are these things made of? Well, there's a nice quote by Isaac, Isaac Asimov in this book. I'm not super fond of quoting Asimov, but in this case, I like what he says. It's, pretty straightforward. He says, I am told that so many people have seen objects that looked like spaceships that there must be something in it. 
Maybe there is, but think of all the people in the history of the world who have seen ghosts and spirits and angels. It's not what you see that is suspect, but how you interpret what you see. Could it be that something came out of those woods at that moment that you and your son saw as a woodsman, but that is not in itself a woodsman, <laughs> you know? Sure, sure. Could it be that the, the weird commingling of psyche, of our, of our individual psyche with the extra, outside world gives certain shapes to certain things? I tend to find that that is, uh, I, I'm not actually fond of any of these psychic theories or takes on what this phenomena is. Not because I don't think that there's something imaginal or psychic about these things, but because I think that they underestimate the possibilities of a physical cosmos. I mean, we all know that physics isn't just about like oak tables and like cars and shit. Physics is about energy and energy is strange. And, um, all matter is energy. So even on a purely physicalist basis, you could make an argument for the existence of strange beings made of like dark matter. I don't know that cross over into our, I mean, Kiel is constantly using pseudoscientific language to explain, like he talks about the super spectrum or these manifestations of energy that take specific forms. So there are plenty of of examples in this world of material things, such as, let's say, fire, that appear and disappear without having to go anywhere, without leaving really any visible or sensible remnant of itself. Could some of those things be intelligent, be thinking, be acting in certain ways? That's the question. This is a kind of thing that makes me realize how hard a time I have getting past mind-body dualism. Or how it's so easy for me to think of, like, how does magic work if, if we decide it works at all? I once said on our show, the result of a magical working will turn up as a synchronicity because you don't need any special understanding of how matter works to understand the coincidence of two different things that have a certain kind of meaning. But I remember saying, like, yeah, but you're not going to turn somebody into a frog because that's not something that's really materially possible in our universe. Well, it's not really materially possible to manifest a fucking woodsman out of nothing either. And yet that looked to me a whole lot like that's what happened. Well, uh, how do we know it's not materially possible? I think my... Yeah, I know. Exactly. That's why why I keep saying I'm getting stuck in a certain way of thinking. It's a problem for me. Because I remember the thing about the frog, and my response was that it's much easier to explain someone turning someone else into a frog than to explain how a synchronicity could be occasioned by a magical spell. I think that that's much harder to explain because if I look at you and turn you into a frog, all you have to explain is by what force of my mind did I change all the molecules in your body into those of a frog? Whereas if I, if I have something like the large sum check where I do a sigil and I happen to get a check three days later that responds to my sigil working, then I have to explain not only the accuracy of the sigil versus the event, but actually how all of these, the accountant who wrote the check, the people, how all of the fucking universe coordinated itself in order to realize my sigil. That's much harder to explain physically, not in terms of how something happens, but that something happens. Like, I think that it's easier to explain me shooting a fireball out of my mouth than the occasioning of a single coincidence that's actually a real coincidence caused by the magical working. But of course, it just depends on how you look at it. I'm not saying it's easy to explain how somebody could be turned into a frog. 
although we have, I mean, I was looking at the other day, Delphine and I were watching a video of a maggot turning into a fly. And it was a time-lapse video. So it looked exactly like a sequence from a horror film of a transfer of a, a, a monstrous transformation. You saw the maggot die, dry up, and all of a sudden inside the maggot, something's moving in there. All of a sudden this gunk just bursts out of it. It becomes an eye. And then the other eye appears and it's all happening right in front of you. It looks exactly like something from a horror film and it's actually real. All the changes is the scale, the time mm. scale of mm. where it's happening. So it's like, if, if a maggot can turn into a fly, then a human can turn into a frog. It's like, it's not inconceivable. <laughs> but creating a coincidence, that to me is almost inexplicable. So, so if there's one thing that Keel believes, it's that nuts and bolts is a bullshit theory for UFOs. And he has some very funny passages where he just goes off on UFO believers all of whom are nuts and bolts people, all of whom believe in the extraterrestrial hypothesis that these are nuts and bolts craft with the same reality claim that a Boeing 747 jetliner has. Yeah. Uh, that they're full of self-existent entities that have their own lives separate from us. And that these beings are like flying down here, buzzing people for some fucking reason, and then going back up to Alpha Centauri or whatever. Uh, and he... I think for some very good reasons, dumps all over that way of thinking. And I have found it very easy to go along with that because like I said, on some unexamined level, I find mind-body dualism a lot easier to continue holding on to than anything else. And right. yet now we're back sort of saying like, maybe these things are in some sense, nuts and bolts, material things, actual physical machines. Well, it's I mean, pos it's possible. And maybe, you know, that dude, what's his name? Bob, uh, Bob Lazar, Bob Lazar. Maybe he, maybe he really did work on a UFO base. Or maybe the universe, maybe the physical universe is more complex than we think it is. I yeah. mean, it's like, that's the, this is something that a lot of scientists or philosophers of science have pointed out is that humanity's people tend to be stuck in a Newtonian physical cosmos, which scientists have already said is not the whole of reality. But we keep going back to this Newtonian billiard balls hitting each other thing where quantum science has already shown that that's not the fundamental nature of our reality. So if anything dissolves the mind-body boundary, the boundary between the mind and the body, the boundary between the physical and the, and the psychic, it's basically quantum physics. I mean, it does it in a way that's, I think that people overplay that hand, but at the same time, none of us experiences the world as a duality of mind and body. We all experience objects as at once things out there and thoughts in here. They're the same thing at once. They're not, you can't really separate. You can't really locate the point where those things are separated. You can't separate meaning from events. You can't have just events and then the meaning, you can't see where the, the meaning is tacked on to something. We live in a world that is physical and psychic. So our model of reality should reflect that. But unfortunately, we tend to get to stay stuck in a kind of Cartesian dualism that is not doing us any favors when we try to talk about things that blatantly transgress yeah. against that. So we have to think deeper. So nuts and bolts. Yeah. I mean, maybe the UFOs are made of imaginal nuts and bolts, but there's still nuts <laughs> and bolts, right? Like, like there's if no it doubt. crashed in a farmer's field, it would leave a crater. Well, if you believe the stories, then they do leave craters. In fact, they yeah. do crash. Um, there's 
just more stuff. Supposedly, New York Times journalists are calling around about Roswell again. There seems to have some new evidence seems to have surfaced that something happened there. I don't know anything about that. And people but talk I, about like finding weird metals and shit. And all this time I've been like, that's probably bullshit. But maybe they did. Well, what's funny in, uh, in Mothman Prophecies is that he keeps finding physical evidence of things. But they turn out to be mundane. Like, did you notice that? Like, yes. He, he, like somebody will will be handed three pills. So a contactee is given three pills by an alien. Uh, his name is Mr. Apple. So Mr. Apple, I think it was him, gives this yeah. woman three pills, says take two of those pills. And the other one is for analysis. So you can make sure that we're not giving you, you know, that we're giving you real medicine or whatever. So she gives the third pill to John Keel who has it tested and it's like medication for urinary tract infections. <laughs> it's like, yeah. or another time, uh, the woman is given a medallion by the alien. So she, she sends him the medallion. He's super excited because she let him, I sent it to you. I mailed it. So he gets it. He opens it up and it's just it's a cheap piece of stamp steel, just a piece of like a dog tag with nothing yeah. on it. Yeah. And, uh, and she said it was wrapped in parchment, but it was actually part of an old envelope. So it's like, but that's exactly what happens in folklore with the fairies. In fairy tales. Yeah. It's yeah. Glamour. You come back with a hat full of gold coins and then you realize it's just a bunch of dead leaves. Yeah, exactly. That's called glamour in fairy folklore. So like, where does the physical end and the psychical start? And that's kind of the question. Obviously, yep. there's no line between the two. So there is, like Jung said, some kind of spectrum but the minute you entertain that possibility, the world starts to look really, really different. Really weird. And, yeah. And I wanted to say something about also about, because um, we're just circling back to the thing about belief and different takes and all the takes are equally wrong because the phenomenon is impervious to interpretation. That's kind of the way of looking at it. You'll often hear, for instance, people used to call them fairies. Now we call them aliens. Like those two things exist on a level. That's not quite true. That's a disingenuous way of describing what's happened historiographically in the literature. What happened was that the more people looked at what they thought were aliens, the more they noticed that aliens behaved like fairies. Whereas if you look back at the fairy theory, the way people describe the behavior and powers of fairies is much more accurate than the way that we imagine aliens should behave. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like the fairy hypothesis is better than the alien hypothesis because fairies, by definition, include things like ambiguity, shape-shifting, uh, mercurialness, yes. Uh, yes. glamour. All those things were already built into the theory. So that's a sturdier, better theory for approaching the phenomenon than aliens. And that's why I don't, I don't have a kind of like nihilistic all these different takes are equally wrong. I don't think that's true. Some takes are better than others. It's much, much more accurate to read John Keel's book and say that he experienced some kind of like massive fairy phenomenon than it is to say that he experienced some kind of extraterrestrial phenomenon because most of the aliens here who claim to be from other places claim to be from other worlds, not other planets. And we all know that fairies always belonged to other worlds and crossed right. over into our world. So if right. you look at it from a fairy folklore perspective, this book is perfectly quote unquote explainable. It makes perfect sense. It's part of a long continuing tradition of interaction between humans and what we call fairies. It's only when the alien hypothesis gets jammed in there, even if it's only to refute it, that things start to look more inexplicable. It just right. seems to me like John Keel encountered a bunch of fairies and they acted like fairies do. And they acted exactly as that old dude in Ireland would have told you fairies acted. They did exactly <laughs> what fairies do, predictably. 
It's so it's like that's why I don't like some of the way that the narrative has been framed in the weirdosphere. It's often like there's something beyond all of the existing theories that is equally different from each theory that we have to aim for. And of course, that thing is always inevitably some kind of universal mind delivering us a message about the fundamental nature of the universe and how it's all about us in the end and all about our own evolution and, and our, the evolution of our consciousness, which I think is just a lame answer to what's an actually weird fucking phenomenon that's happening. Well, on the plus side, if we entertain that thought, that um, critique of a sort of idealist uh, tinge of explanation in the phenomenon, then Keel's more nihilistic sounding utterances, the whole history of human art and religion and thought as uh, basically the outcome of one long prank played by these ultra terrestrials. That's what he calls them. Not extraterrestrials, but ultra terrestrials, which I like. I like that. I love that. Yeah. I like yeah. that term. But, uh, you know, his despairing last line, um, if there is a universal mind, must it be sane? Or it's actually Charles Fort's despairing line. Um, the trick is, who said anything about this being universal? In what sense do you mean? Well, universal mind is pretty much the figure of idealism. But something that James liked to point out, uh, he brings in Gustav Fechner for this. You know, I can imagine like kind of psychic groupings. I don't know how to put this exactly, but just like dimensions of mind that go beyond the individual human being. Mm -hmm. um, I'm willing to entertain the idea that the mind that embraces mine could be very large indeed and very godlike indeed. I just deny that it is logically necessary that there only be one mind. Right, right. That, that's a good point. Because one of my criticisms of Kiel, for what that's worth anyways, is that he's very monistic. So he constantly talks about the phenomenon in the singular instead of talking about various disparate phenomena, which for all he knows yeah, might a represent a bunch of different forces. Maybe some of these forces are clashing with one another. Maybe some of the entities are better than others. Maybe some know more than others. But of course, when you decide to put it all into one bin, it's all one phenomenon, then it looks insane because it's constantly contradicting itself. So right. obviously you live, if you look at all these disparate events that happened in Point Pleasant or around Point Pleasant in 1967, and you say all these things were manifestations of one intelligence, well, that intelligence is going to look fucking crazy because right. it wasn't saying anything coherent. But of course, if you were to land on planet Earth from some other planet and you talk to 60 different people about what's going on on this planet and then get whisked back to your home planet, you would probably go back with some kind of theory as to the total insanity of earthlings because everybody here has a different take on everything else and also the ecology of the planet is so multifarious and so diverse that you couldn't possibly get a clear take on the whole thing from one little set of experiences he got a glimpse into the other world and it didn't make sense to him and it felt malevolent and awful but that doesn't mean that that's the whole other world, right? It, it could be just yeah. that that's his impression of what happened that particular year in Point Pleasant. I mean, I love this book. I fucking adore it. And I love John Keel's mind. But I'm, I choose to remain very wary of his monistic tendency to take all these disparate phenomena and put them in, under one intention 
and then claim that that intention is totally disinterested in humanity or at least is actually actively malevolent to us. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.